Well, yeah, <laughs> when I was in college, I literally had to walk uphill both ways no matter where I went because the center of campus was on a big hill. So you'd have to go up the hill to get to the other side and then on your way back, you'd have to go up the hill again. Are you eating dry oatmeal? How do you... Don't knock it till you try it. Oh, pretty good. Well... Well, to, to, to each his own. To each his own. Okay, hymn 401. Hymn 401 stands as 1, 5, and 6. From God the Father, virgin born, to us the only Son came down, by death the font to consecrate, the faithful to regenerate. Lord, once you came to earth's domain, and we believe shall come again. Be with us on the battlefield, from every harm your people shield. To you, O Lord, all glory be, for this your blessed epiphany. To God, whom all his hosts adore, and Holy Spirit evermore. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Almighty and everlasting God, who governs all things in heaven and on earth, mercifully hear the prayers of your people and grant us your peace through all our days. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. All right, the verse of the week, Hebrews 13:4. Let's speak this together. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Right, so firstly, when it comes to marriage, marriage is defined by who? Yes, correct, by God. So when we talk about marriage, and you know, it's a shame that we have to do this at all, is to, to start by saying what, is, what constitutes marriage. Uh, it's not the first time and it won't be the last, but sad nonetheless. Marriage is defined by God, and that is important for one very big reason. And what is that reason? If God is the one who defines marriage... Who else defines marriage? No one. Which means that it doesn't matter what laws are passed, it doesn't matter what courts rule, it doesn't matter what government tells the church they have to or should be doing. God is the one who defines what marriage is. And anyone else can talk about marriage, but if they're talking about marriage in a way that is not within the definition that God sets forth about what marriage is and what it is to be, then they can call it marriage, but it isn't, okay? So marriage is defined by God, and marriage is honorable among all, which is to say what? Who can, for whom is marriage a good thing? Everyone. For everyone, including pastors and other people who serve in the church. Uh, 
this was part of the Augsburg Confession. There's an article on the marriage of priests because the Roman Catholic Church uh, affirms celibacy. And I'm not going to get into that, and I'm not going to say that one is better or worse than another. Uh, historic precedent says that priests have married, and in the Eastern Orthodox Church, their priests do marry. Uh, but Hebrews 13 says that marriage is honorable among all. So the, to, to people who want to be married, just like uh, the Word of God says to those who desire the office of the holy ministry, if you desire marriage, you desire an honorable thing. You desire to enter into an honorable estate. It, marriage is a good thing um, for all. And the bed, which is to say what? What do we mean when we say bed? Okay, yeah, but what is the what does it what does marriage bed mean? Uh, yeah, okay, physical union. Yeah, think a little more carnally. It's going to be. I'm warning you. Today's a carnal day, so if you're up here, you're going to need to take a couple steps down. The the marriage bed, meaning the one flesh union, which is physically manifested in the physical union of man and woman is to be undefiled, meaning that it is to be kept pure. And how do you know what it means to keep it pure? Because it is defined by God. Now, fornicators, what is a fornicator? Because there's a difference between fornication and adultery. It can be the same act, but that's a specific, there are specific words. To be a fornicator is to be what? Be anybody. But, but what does... has to be in a marriage. Okay, sure. But to be a fornicator, yes, anybody can be a fornicator, but what does it mean to be a fornicator? What is the verb fornicate? If you are a fornicator, what does that mean about you? Yes, but it's more than that. Think about the fast and loose culture. Yes, fast and loose. Uh, to, to be a fornicator is that you are somebody who is sort of a, a serial one-night stander, shall we say. That you're, you are going around sleeping with people because it feels good and you like it and you find people attractive, but you have no intention of joining yourself to them even though you're doing that very thing. So that's, that's fornication. And adultery is, uh, adultery is sinning against the marital union, uh, which constitutes more than simply going to bed with another person. It, it constitutes quite a bit, which we'll see in just a little bit here. But So fornicators and adulterers, by the way, fornication is often uh, what St. Paul is referring to when he uses the phrase sexually, the sexual, sexually immoral or sexual immorality often is referencing uh, fornication. Okay? Um, God will judge. Bless you. And the trumpet shall sound and the Lord will descend from heaven. <laughs> um, God will judge. Does this mean that God is not going to judge other sins? No, he, God does judge sins. But why, why make the point about saying these particular things, the sins of sexual immorality, God is going to judge? Let's, let's contextually fill in the blanks here. You can add two more words here. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge... <laughs> yes, I mean, essentially, more harshly. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge more harshly. Why? 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord? All other sins that you commit are outside the body, but sexual, the sins of sexual immorality are against your body, which is against your person and against your relationship with God. There's a, there's a steep slope. Why do you think the Bible has so many prohibitions about sex and sexual immorality? Because that's, 
Those are sins of a particularly per pernicious nature. Okay, let's speak this again. Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Yes, what is the sixth commandment? You shall not commit adultery. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we lead a sexually pure and decent life in what we say and do, and husband and wife love and honor each other. Sexually pure and decent life can be summed up in one word. Can you think of what that one word might be? Yeah, chastity, a chaste life. So a life of chastity is a life that is free from lust. Uh, and lusting in particular is looking at someone and desiring them, but desiring them in an impure way. Desi it's okay to desire. In fact, a husband and a wife should desire one another. But desiring is different than lusting. Lusting is like what an animal does. Desiring is what God does. So you, you are to lead a chaste life in what places of life? In everything that you say and do. And I mean, you can, you can say everything that you think as well because that's how we confess our sins, thought, word, and deed. So in what you say, in what you do, in what you think, you are to be sexually chaste. You are to be uh, humble. You are to exercise restraint. You are not to get around a table and have a beer or two with the guys and crack a bunch of lewd and disgusting jokes. Uh, things of that nature, okay? But not only that, husband and wife, so that's everybody. So you, you can trespass against the sixth commandment even outside of marriage. If you're a fornicator, you're outside of marriage, but you're still trespassing against the sixth commandment because the sixth commandment is not only about marriage, it is about the sexual nature of the body and preserving the good gift of uh, bodily identity, bodily vision, bodily communion, and bodily union. All of that is incorporated with the Sixth Commandment. So it's not just for husband and wife, but it, it's not just for husband and wife, but it is for husband and wife. Husband and wife are to love and honor each other. I'm going to ask you a quick question here. Gentlemen, who does your body belong to? Well, yes, but think of... Obviously. Okay, uh, that's the obvious answer. Think of, th think of a different relationship level, not the vertical, but the horizontal. Who does your body belong to? Yes. 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 It, your body is not yours. In fact, the old text of the wedding liturgy said, with my body I thee worship. There's a transfer of ownership, which also means that ladies, if you're married, who does your body belong to? Your husband. Husbands own the body of the woman, own the whole person, really. Wives own the body, the person of the husband. So you are to love and to honor one another. It's, that's all in the marriage rite, too. Love, cherish, honor, that kind of language. You're giving yourselves to one another, which means the whole argument about my body, my choice is kind of stupid because, well, it's not really your body. At least, you know, physically in the context of marriage, it really isn't your body. You've given your body to another. Likewise, another has given their body to you. So then you, who are husband and wife, are to love and honor each other as those whom you give yourself to and receive the fullness of the self from. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, to Sunday school. Is there an analogy in that verse between Christ and his marriage to the church? Oh, absolutely. Anytime we discuss marriage, there, there is a referent to Christ and his bride, the church. And the reason for that is because earthly marriage is modeled after and reflects 
that marriage of Christ and his church. So actually, human, the, the human marriage of man and woman is secondary. Uh, it is a reflection because the thing that is primary is Christ and the church. How do you know what it looks like to love? How do you know what the structure of marriage is supposed to be? How do you know what the fruits of marriage are? How do you know how you are to behave within the marital union? It's all because it's modeled and laid out for you by Christ and the church. It's not like marriage just comes out of the blue where the Lord says, well, now I'm going to do something I've never done before, and I'm going to give you this thing called marriage, and I'm going to put, I'm, here are all of the rules for marriage. It doesn't really, even the Ten Commandments aren't God saying, all right, now I want you to live really well, here are a bunch of rules. It's all a reflection of who God is and the nature of God. So, yes, absolutely. Anytime, anytime we talk about marriage, it gets back to Christ and the church. Uh, you can, you, you can, for the sake of illustration, you'd have to ch change some things to make it. Uh, I, I, I don't think you would have to, though, uh, because the way it's presented now, all you have to do is say why. Marriage is honorable among all. Why? Because it comes from Christ, and Christ has given it. And the bed is, is undefiled. Why? Well, because, right, you don't want to sin, and because Christ has given us the illustration of what it means to be holy. Uh, so that when you strive to be holy and pure and chaste, just as a Christian, but even within the confines of your marriage, it isn't because you're trying to follow the law. This is the big problem when we talk about works and what it means to live like a Christian, but specifically when it comes down to things like marriage and fidelity and chastity. Why is it bad for you to get a divorce, or to, to, you know, to seek a divorce, to say, I don't love you anymore, I want to divorce you, that whole idea of no-fault divorce. Or the, the, the idea of, well, I, I love my husband, but to keep our marriage alive, I think we need to spice things up a little bit you know, and have guests come in. Or, I, or one of us needs to have, you know, we can be married, but then we also need to have the freedom of being able to go out independently and meet up with people that we, you know. And th this is all real stuff. So why, don't, why is that bad? Is it because we say, well, God says it's bad, and therefore it's bad, and if you do it, then you get punished, and then so you better not do it. Well, no. So the bed is undefiled. Why? Because there's purity there. Because it's modeling Christ, and Christ is pure, and he wants us to be pure. Why does he want you to be pure? Because it's so much better for you to be pure. Everything that Christ wants for you is because it's good for you. And everything that Christ doesn't want for you is because it isn't good for you. That's the whole thing. The, the Ten Commandments, the law, everything, it, all the prohibitions, it all comes from love. Just like you as parents, fathers and mothers, laying down rules within the household, you don't do it just so that your kids walk around going, oh, I'm going to walk on eggshells my whole life. Oh, I don't want to get spanked or yelled at or grounded. It's because you're setting the boundaries of what is good for your children and what is not good for your children. And unless you put the boundaries down, it's not established. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Why? Because marriage is a heavenly, it is a divine institution, not an earthly institution. And the Lord has established the structure of marriage, and the, there is a reason why he has done it, because it's good for you, because it is not good that man should be alone. And by the way, that doesn't just mean it is not good that a male should be alone. Uh, it is just as not good for Eve to have been alone if God had made her and then put her on the opposite side of the world and said, now man's on one side and woman's on the other, it would have been just as bad or just as not good for Eve to be alone as it is for Adam. Man and woman are made for each other. They're made to be one flesh, man and woman together. So God judges more harshly the sins against the body because the body is the reflection of his image. It is the communication physically of his divine love and mercy and grace to fellow humans, but specifically within the realm of marriage. 
The fullness of God's love is reflected within the marriage bed, within the, the relationship between a husband and a wife. That's why we can use language like knowing. It, and I've said this before, it's a pet peeve of mine when people say that knowing in the biblical sense is all that knowing means. When it says Adam knew his wife. There's a difference between saying Adam knew his wife and saying Adam lay with his wife. Because both of those happen. In, there, are, there, there is an instance where Adam knows his wife and there is another instance where Adam lays with his wife. What's the difference? Why record two different words? Why can't we just standardize it? Because to know is more than euphemism. You can't really escape the fact of laying with his wife. Okay, we know what that is. But when it comes to knowing, knowing includes laying with his wife, but it is not limited to that. Because in knowing, when a, when a wife knows her husband and a husband knows her wife, knows his wife, there is a communication of self. I am giving the fullness of everything that I am in thought, in word, in deed, in spirit, and in body to you. And likewise, I am receiving the same from you. That is a relationship that you only have with your spouse. You, you, you can have some really close friends, but none of your friends have that same kind of relationship with you that your spouse does. And that's a, that is divine knowing. So, when you hear in the prayers, by the way, when we speak of things like, we pray, O Lord, that we would know you, we are not saying, hey, if you came and walked on the street, we would recognize you and go, hey, I know you, you're God, aren't you? Hey, good to meet you. I'm glad you opened my eyes so that I knew you when I saw you. That's not what we're talking about. We're actually talking in marital language when we say, Lord, we pray that we would know you. Which is to say, what we're praying for is that God would give us the fullness of himself in body, in spirit, in everything. And that we would receive it and then likewise give the fullness of ourselves to him. And now you see why we pray that we would know the Lord. Because when you understand it in that sense, apart from an intellectual or an academic sense, it becomes a much more complicated and difficult thing, mostly on your end, not on God's. I mean, it's difficult for God to love in the sense that his love goes unrequited because it's difficult for anybody to love if their love is unrequited. Uh, when, you, when you rebel against God and you say, no thanks uh, to him, that is a difficult thing for God. But it's on you. That difficulty is on you. It's not difficult for God to love or to attempt to communicate himself to you or know you or have you know him. Uh, so that's the trouble with man is that man is trying to spurn the love of God and say, no, I, I love myself more than I love you. I don't think that you're what's best for me, blah, 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 whatever, uh, whatever it is. And so we become more in love with ourselves than we are in Christ. So we pray that we would know Christ. This is why, by the way, if you think there's only two sacraments in the Lutheran Church, you're dead wrong. There are at least four. At least four, but more. And the, the reason why I say at least four is because in the Book of Concord, in the Lutheran Confessions that I am subscribed to unconditionally, and the church is subscribed to unconditionally. There are four sacraments outlined. The Lord's Supper and Baptism, which are the two everybody knows, confession and absolution, and marriage. When's the last time growing up in the Lutheran church you heard a Lutheran pastor tell you that marriage was a sacrament? That's what I thought. But it's in the confessions in more than one place. Why is it that marriage could be considered a sacrament? Okay, sure, yeah, instituted by God. Good, very good. What about marriage? What happens within marriage that only happens within marriage? And don't, they, don't say sex. I fight with lots of people outside of marriage. 
Although fights within marriage tend to be of a different and unique sort. <laughs> not, that, not that we fight that much. Really. We've had this conversation in Bible class before. We have, yes. Yeah, and I'm going to ask the same question I asked before. Uh -huh. That is, the sacrament also offers the forgiveness of sins. Yes. Or another way that we can say it is, it, the grace of God is given. And within marriage, there is grace afforded you that can only be considered divine, husbands and wives. The degree to which your spouse puts up with you is not human. It is divine because no human, solely by their own capabilities, has the strength to be able to do that. <laughs> it, it is a divine grace, and it is the kind of grace that only exists within that marital union. Because you can get away with things in marriage that you couldn't get away with anywhere. Your friends wouldn't put up with you. Your boss wouldn't put up with you. Your co-workers wouldn't put up with that kind of garbage. But your spouse does and will. It doesn't always mean that they're happy about it, but they will do it. They will put up with it. They will be patient to a degree, in their, and, and be long-suffering to a degree. Uh, because it's, a, it's divine. You're entering into a divine estate. That, that's why we don't take marriage lightly, because there are some really big, important things then that happen in marriage, which is why that I never can accept the excuse, I don't love them anymore, when, you, when, you, when a marriage starts to fail, and you get, well, I just don't think I love them anymore. And you say, that's because you love yourself too much right now, and you're not working within the bounds of what you're supposed to do as far as your responsibilities in the marital union. Bruce. Okay. On this discussion, marriage is honorable only if it is between a male and a female. It... You... It's, tr it's a true statement, but you don't have to say it. Because marriage doesn't happen between anybody else. Anything that goes against the definition of God... So we, in this day and age, we're seeing same-sex marriage. You're seeing same-sex unions. You're not seeing same-sex marriages. God, in other words, God does not approve of a marriage that does not involve, does not involve a male and a female. Yes, but we don't take homosexuality and set it up as if it's the pinnacle of sins, which we're tempted to do. Because here's the other thing, God also doesn't approve of a marriage between a man and a woman where the man and the woman aren't behaving the way that they're supposed to do within the confines of marriage. So, here's, this is the way to think about it. When we say that marriage is honorable among all, it's like when you look at the catechism and you pray the Lord's Prayer, and then you say, well, what does this mean? Um, you, that, uh, uh, hallowed be thy name. What does this mean? God's name is certainly holy in itself. We say the same thing about marriage. Marriage is honorable among all. Why? Because marriage is holy in itself. Why? Because it stems from, reflects, and is instituted by God. So the estate of marriage is holy in and of itself. And we pray that in our, I'm using catechism language, we pray that in our daily lives, everything that we do and say would reflect would be influenced by and reflect the holiness of that marriage. That's the way that we talk about it. So that, does God approve of a homosexual marriage? No, because it isn't a marriage. But does he approve of a, a heterosexual marriage where there is physical or mental or emotional abuse? No, because that's not a marriage either. Just because you have one sex versus a different sex that come together, have a ceremony, sign a piece of paper, bing, bang, boom, mail it into the state, that isn't what defines a marriage. So 
marriage is holy because of God, and marriage is defined as being this thing, and this is the way that you f- a marriage functions. So any trespass against the definition or the function or the communication of self or anything within marriage is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. The Sixth Commandment is, is very difficult. This is a very hard commandment. And it gets, honestly, when you understand it rightly, you realize that no matter who you are, even this one is impossible to keep. Because you can say, I never, I never broke the marital fidelity between me and my wife. But when you start breaking it down, have you, have you functioned as a husband in the fullness of what it means for you to be a husband? If not, then you have gone against you have gone against marriage. So it isn't only that, well, as long as a man and a woman get together, that's a good marriage, and if it's a man and a man or a woman and a woman, it's not a good marriage. Now, I'm not saying that we go around and say, oh, yes, every marriage that the state calls a marriage is a marriage, because it isn't. That's why I say it's a, there is a same-sex union, but there is no such thing as a same-sex marriage because God is the one who defines marriage, which means that regardless of how culture, uh, authorities, courts, anybody decides that they will define marriage, if it doesn't fit with this definition of marriage, then it isn't marriage because marriage comes from God, not from the government. Does that make sense? Does that... It's, it is, it is legally a marriage, but in any other, in any other sphere, it is not. This is one of those times where we agree with Caesar and cooperate with Caesar insofar as Caesar remains subject to the word of God. But when Caesar says something that is against the word of God, then we say, sorry, Caesar, you're wrong. If the word of God says this is what marriage is and Caesar says this something else is what marriage is, who's right and who do we listen to? Well, we listen to the word of God. I mean, we're subject to the word of God and we're subject to Caesar insofar as we are subject to God. But we're not subject to Caesar only because of the fact that he's Caesar. We're subject to Caesar because we are subject to God. You are subject to earthly authorities because you are subject to God. You love your parents and other authorities, not because they're always so great and deserving of your love, but because God is deserving of your love, excuse me, and God has established them. To love and to respect your authorities is to love and respect God. But when authorities break from God, then you still stick with God. And they can go and they can do and they can say whatever they want, But if something that they do and says goes against the word of God, then it isn't true. A a, a pertinent example is uh, these last two years here with government shutdowns, coming into churches and saying, you are not allowed to have worship or you are not allowed to have the sacraments. And we say, you don't get to tell me what I am and am not allowed to do uh, here. You don't get to tell me I'm not allowed to have the sacrament because my Lord says that I am to have it. So it doesn't matter what the law says or, or, or what uh, sheriffs do or what the President of the United States says or does. What they do and say, if it goes against the word of God, is false. Okay, so there's a difference between what is true marriage and what is legally defined as marriage. And what is legally defined as marriage is different from country to country, too. See, I think you're mincing words, because to me, I... But that's not all that it is. And, and you, can have, I, you can have a union, and you're right in a sense, I am kind of mixing words, or mincing words, but I'm doing, it to make, I'm doing it to prove a point. That there is a difference between a marriage, in the full sense of what marriage is, as it is instituted, ordained, and kept alive by God, and two people that get together that sign a license and have the state approve what they're doing. We wouldn't look at that and call it a marriage. We would say, well, you know, best, best construction is that it's just a form of cohabitation. But being polite, I say union. Because even those who are in marriages that we do not 
affirm and disagree with and believe are sinful, we treat with love and grace. And uh, so, you know, we don't, we're not the Westboro Baptist Church that goes around with picket signs that say God hates fags. We, that's not the way that we behave. So I'm being polite when I say a same-sex union and mincing words to a degree only to differentiate the fact that that isn't what we would call a marriage. So you're right, uh, but there's a reason for it. Does that? Okay. You said that there were at least four sacraments. It seems like I remember that the Catholic Church said there are seven. Catholic Church says that there are seven. Basically, the, the Lutheran Confession says, as long as the Lord's Supper and baptism are considered the two chief sacraments, you can have as many sacraments as you want. We don't care. <laughs> you can have two, you can have 10, you can have 1,000. We don't care as long as baptism and the Lord's Supper are the two sacraments that are chief. What are the other three that the Catholic Church considers? Uh, <clears throat> I've heard them. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, confirmation, marriage, ordination, extreme unction, and last rites. I think last rites is part of extreme unction. Something like that. Oh, penance. I think penance is a sacrament. Uh, Brenda. That's a good question. That's a very good question. <laughs> it wasn't until the beginning of the 1900s, at least in Missouri and probably other states, that the state started recording marriage. Marriages were always recorded where in the family life. Yes, yes, you're, that is correct. Yeah, I, th I think the biggest issue at play is there are two two definitions of marriage that are floating around. One is the legal definition of marriage, and the other is just what I'll call the theological definition of marriage. The church defines everything theologically. I don't really honestly care what's legal or not. The legal definitions are not the thing that govern what I say and do. I am always concerned with the theological definitions. So when it comes to marriage, the church is concerned with the, or with the theological definition of marriage. The state is concerned with the legal. There are things that you can do legally that the church says you can't do theologically. And that's always been the case. Marriage is not the only thing where that is 
where that's true. The benefits from marriage legally are nice. Could we do without them? Yes, if we had to. If there ever comes a point where the state stops recognizing a church marriage as a marriage, would, would the church continue to perform marriages or would we just give it up to the state and say, well, the state will do the marriages and we'll just bless the union? See, that, I, say, I think the church ought to still conduct marriages because our definition of what a marriage is isn't the definition of the state. And if it ever gets to the point where what the church says is a marriage is considered something that is illegal, then the church continues to do what they do. Okay, I have a question. Yes. So when you're saying church wedding, are you saying church as in the building? No. Or as in the pastor officiating at a marriage? Uh, what I'm saying is the pastor operating in the stead and by the command of Christ, joining a man and a woman together in the in the divine institution of marriage uh, according to the will of God. That's a church, that's what I mean by church, a church wedding. So now, let me just caveat, and I have said this before, the pastor shouldn't do destination weddings. If you wanna to go to Florida and get married on the beach in the sand, you, you shouldn't ask your pastor to do that because you, I, I won't do that. Be, and, the, and the reason is... Even if I offer to pay your way. Yes. <laughs> yes, but it would be a tempting offer. Um, because the issue is, with destination weddings, what is, what is my primary concern? Sam. Well, <laughs> Sam. Uh, I want the experience. I want the setting. I want the wedding to be an experience. And then it's, you know, or if you ever came to your pastor and you said, I want to write my own vows, I say, no. You will say what I tell you to say. I mean, and that's how it even goes. Here's what you're going to say. You're going to say to, you, to this woman who you want to be your wife, buh, 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 buh. I will put the words in your mouth for you to say. So um, can you have a church wedding that is not in the church sanctuary? Yes, stuff like that's on a case-by-case -case basis, though. Like, there is a, I, I'm not going to name any names. I think some people already know. There is a wedding that will be taking place, and that's not going to be in this church building, but it is going to be in a church. And I was asked if I would officiate, and I said, well, what do you want the wedding to be? Do you want it to be about how happy the two of you are to get married, and about the experience, and about the show, and the flair of it? Or do you want it to be a, a wedding about... The, the union of man and woman entering into the divine institution of marriage by the will of God and with his blessings. Oh, the latter. And, and we, want it, you know, we want it to be in the church. It just venue-wise doesn't work to be in that particular building. And I said, well, okay. And if we need to haul in an altar and put some pyramids down, then we will. We'll, we'll make it a church. So that's different than saying, we want you to come out into, the, into the, the mountains of Washington so we can have a wedding out on the cliff so that the pictures look really nice, Pastor. And then you say, well, we need to have a talk. Brenda. This is why uh, most pastors will say that they'd rather do a funeral than a wedding. Yes. yes. So, and it, you know, it was the first wedding of one of our kids, and there was a lot, and then there was a, a blizzard, and it was just, and people couldn't get there, and it was just quite the experience. But during the ceremony, and everything was beautiful, it was Christmas time, and the church was beautiful, and the music was beautiful, and everything was turning out beautifully, and then we came to the balls, and I went, And yes. it just washed over me. It's like all of this was so not important until this very moment. Yes, and this is why I personally, I, I really don't understand why somebody would say, I want to have the pastor do my wedding, but I want to be married in Pensacola, Florida, on the beach at sunset 
instead of in the church. Because if you think, if you consider what marriage really is and what you're doing and what the whole service is, you know, the, the entire structure of that liturgy, what is, what is its function? You know, as with any service, it isn't actually about the people getting married. It's all about Christ. So when you get married, well, I want to get married before God. Well, then where do you go where God is? You know, the altar of God. I mean, there's just something about, I want to get married before God, but not before the altar of God, which is the place where God sits and where he is. There's, I just don't, I don't understand, which is why I would say, uh, it may, it, it's more difficult, Bruce. Uh, Lisa and I went up to, some years back, to uh, Amana, Iowa, and toured the Amana College up there. Uh-huh. And we got to visiting with this elderly lady there and was talking about marriage, the, the, uh, the Mennonites' uh, policy on that. And, that. and when a young couple got engaged to each other, according to their marriage law, they was not supposed to see each other for a year. And during that time, in the men in the colony would build housing arrangements for the new couple to get married, and the women would be making uh, uh, quilts and purples and stuff and that. And so I made a comment, I said, well, that's a long time to go without, you know, getting to see uh, your, 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 your future mate. And this lady said, well, don't worry, there is a plenty of sneaking going on around. But then on the ceremony, when the couple sneaking. married, the manna knights did not believe no any human being is worthy of wearing white. And normally we see brides dressed in white. Mm -hmm. And the bride wore black. Hmm. Yeah. Because no one is worthy, is perfect of wearing white, and that, and I thought that was rather unique. You know, we talk about our children getting married; they want to have you know a nice, beautiful wedding, this and that. And but theirs is more solemn. I mean, it's it's a, it's a ceremony. Yeah. There isn't all this decoration and, and that going on, and that. So I thought that was rather interesting. I know that I wouldn't take that much <laughs> <laughs> I, I like white wedding dresses, so I don't know that I'd be on board with a, a black wedding dress. But I'm not opposed to the whole, you're engaged now, you spend a year apart, you go to the... I mean, say what you will. A year can be a long time, but time goes by quickly when you're working. And uh, I don't know. I I don't have a problem with that, uh, uh, personally. Yes. Familiarity breeds content. Well, it does. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is all actually on topic. Uh, everything. Congregation at prayer. This whole discussion. I'm going to be gone Monday and Tuesday because I'm presenting a paper at the seminary uh, for their exegetical symposium. I printed out copies of my paper. It's there for you to take. I was going to give you a mini presentation of the paper today, but we definitely don't have time to do that now, which is fine. I can actually on, I can save it until we get back and talk about some of these things then, but I want to dive into it just a little bit here. There is a second handout, which is just front to back. And this is an article by a fellow named Kennedy Hall that was published in Crisis Magazine. Crisis Magazine is a Roman Catholic uh, publication that deals sort of with uh, issues of practical Christian living and, uh, and the culture. And as it happens, you look at the date on this article from Kennedy Hall, January 14th, 2022. This was just published. And actually this is, I wish that this had been published earlier because this is entirely what my paper was about, which you can, you can see all of that there on the title page. But um, 
So, in talking about marriage and chastity and the sixth commandment and all of this, the, the theme of the exegetical symposia at the seminary this year is male and female, he created them, recovering a theology of the body. Now, Pope John Paul II wrote, there's a, there's a big book called The Theology of the Body, which honestly, it, it is just about like everything that he wrote, outstanding. And if, if you'd like to read that, I would definitely encourage you to do so. It sometimes can get sort of philosophical, um, as, as he sometimes is wont to do, but not without justification. Um, it's, it is an excellent, excellent, excellent work. Uh, but diving into the idea of what does it mean that you have a body? And what do we think about your body? And Dr. John Kleinig, who is a Lutheran theologian, a former professor uh, at a university in Australia, he just published a book um, in the fall of last year uh, that is a Protestant theology of the body, which is also a very, very good book that I would highly recommend. And John Kleinig, I would recommend just about anything he wrote. He's, he's uh, very good. So the idea of recovering a theology of the body would imply that we have lost our theology of the body. And if you don't believe that we have lost our theology of the body, take a look at the culture and see what the culture says about you and about your body. And, uh, and then tell me that we don't have a theology of the body. And, and look at how for so many years the church was so quiet about issues of, of the body and about humanity and personhood and human sexuality. Uh, and that's an issue that now we're, we're dealing with and suffering the consequences of. So uh, at this symposium I'll be presenting this paper on the demonic character of pornography and uh, the effect that pornography has on de destroying the body. Not only the image of the body, not only the divine image that is reflected in the body, but the body of it, the body itself. And by that I don't mean the flesh that you have on your bones, I mean your body is in a piece of your actual person. Uh, By third or fourth grade, statistics show children are already exposed to the occult, to drugs, and to pornography. And there was a large report published in 2016, and I can only assume that things have not improved since 2016, and I, uh, I did a lot of reading in, in that study to see their conclusions. It was uh, published by the Barna Group. There is a, a very large percentage of users of pornography that are under the age of 12, and a very large percentage of adult porn users who indicate that their first introduction to pornography was before they were 12 years old, which is alarming. Um, our culture is so inculcated with effects of the sexual revolution, with essentially glorified hedonism, which is a philosophy that essentially says, whatever feels good to me is good. Morality is determined by what feels good to me. So I can do whatever I want, and as long as it feels good, it is good. You also have issues now with what characterizes sexuality. And there are issues now with sex and gender. 
Last time I checked, there was something like 67 genders that you can have now. And it seems like every couple months there's more that are just being added. Whatever you want to be, you can be. And it's, it's ridiculous. Where is your identity? And the worst part of all of this is that the people that it affects the most are not the adults. It is the children. So one of the things that you'll see, and I'll go into this in more detail, so, so you, can, you, can read, you, you can take this paper and you can read it if you're curious about it. Um, and I guess I'll talk about it next week, but anything that you don't understand, um, bring questions, and there, there will be some things that you don't understand, I can guarantee you. Uh, but that's fine, because we're going to talk about it. But there are many things in, in the spirit of the culture, and I'm not talking simply about the modern culture, uh, the current climate. I'm, also, I'm talking about the spirit of the culture as the zeitgeist evolves. So what was the spirit of the culture during the time of the Romans? What was the spirit of the culture during the era of the medieval church? There are some things within the spirit of the culture that are so deeply pervasive that ultimately they transcend, they transcend mankind's ability to create and sustain evil. I can think of one right off the top of my head, and I can tell you. The slaughter of children. The issue of abortion, what we now call abortion, is nothing new. There have always been those issues of the slaughter of children, of the sacrifice of children. Uh, and, they, it, and often, it, throughout all history, one of the main reasons has been convenience. A child is a financial burden. This child was an accident. I don't know that I can support this child. I don't want this child. So what is my course of action? I can terminate a pregnancy and I can take the life of that child and then I don't have to worry about the child. There's a word in the Greek and it's pharmakuo. That's the word that we get our word pharmacy from. So pharmakuo is basically a potion mixer, a drug dealer slash potion mixer. A pharmakuos was a bad person because what was the predominant potion or mix that you would go to drink. It was a concoction that was designed to be an abortifacient. That you would go to the pharmacuos, you'd go to the pharmacist to get a drink that they would mix up of certain herbs and chemicals that you would drink to kill the child. Which is when St. Paul talks about, uh, oh, Galatians, who has bewitched you, who has killed your faith, the word is pharmacuo. To whom have you gone and bound yourself in purchasing that which you have used to willfully abort that living faith within you? That's what he says to the Galatians. That is something, and there's a philosopher that I love named Peter Kraft. The library has a number of Peter Kraft books and will continue to gather Peter Kraft books because he's so good. Peter Kraft has a quote where he says, how can you look at something... What do you have to conquer before you can get a woman to consider having an abortion? You have to conquer one of the strongest things known to earth, and that is motherly love. Now, a father loves his children, but there is something different and unique and much stronger even uh, in the love of a mother for her children. There's a reason we talk about mother bears being the most dangerous and not about papa bears being the most dangerous. There is a love that a mother has for her children. What kind of force is there in the world, in mankind, that can push a woman beyond that love for her child to the, to the point and to the place where she 
would willingly take the life of that child. It is not something, this is what this philosopher says, it is not something that, that humans can do. You cannot on your own overcome maternal love. There is something else that works behind the scenes to make that such a powerful thing, which is why it has stood the test of history and continues to be a problem in every single age of man. Pornography is exactly the same thing. Pornography, sexual immorality, the whole my body, my choice argument as it pertains to what kinds of things I get to do with my body with, you know, between consenting adults, that is a pervasive issue through history and it is, it is one that requires more force of evil than mankind is able to generate. And it is demonic. Abortion is a demonic thing. It, is, it takes a demonic force to be able to push a woman into whatever mindset, typically despair. A, a woman who thinks that abortion is her only option, you know, all celebrities aside, you know, the t-shirts that say, yeah, I loved my abortion. Those people aside, your average Joe woman who goes in to get an abortion is not doing it happily. Sort of like somebody who commits suicide. Nobody commits suicide all of a sudden off the cuff. Hey, you know what I'm going to do today? I think I'm going to commit suicide. Yeah, that'll, that's a good idea. Nobody goes into it like that. It is always despair. Burden. There's only one thing that can put that kind of a despair and that kind of wickedness into the heart of man. The same is true with pornography. And pornography is a hideous thing because what you see on the internet or in the magazines is only the top of the iceberg. In fact, the managing editor of Playboy magazine said, essentially, our publication is now defunct in the modern era because of the type of material, the extreme nature of it, that is now widely available to anybody for free, it's more than we could ever hope to publish in a magazine. It, the internet pornography put us out of business. And, and that's a problem because of the nature of addictions, which constantly want you constantly leave you wanting more. You, you get a high and then it plateaus, so you have to up the dose, just like with, with a heroin addict. You, you can only take so much for so long, and then you need more. And with pornography, what you want is more and more extreme. And the internet is happily providing it. But it is a demonic thing. It is a, demo it is a demonic thing that seeks out your children and wants to introduce them to that. It is a demonic thing that tries to destroy the image of God. It is a demonic thing that tries to contort human sexuality into some kind of animal behavior. And it is a demonic thing that transforms what is supposed to be in the love of enjoyment, which again is a love that loves someone just for the sake that of their own being. I love you because you are, and, and because of who you are. And it transforms that into, it contorts it into use. Why do I want you? Why do I like you? Why do I want to spend time with you? Because I want to use you. I want to get something out of you. You're a good looking woman, and I want you. It's a, de it's a demonic thing, animalistic. So. Um, you can read these. I'll talk about this paper in a little bit, but everything that the pastor does, uh, especially in the academic realm, is, is something that the church ought to benefit from. So I don't want this just to be a paper that I'm in Fort Wayne presenting. I want it to be something that, that you see and, and can know too. Now, before we run here, I know we're a little past time. I'm going to put something up on the board. This is a sales pitch for you. You should buy this book. The Word on Fire Bible. It's produced by Bishop Robert Barron, who is the Archbishop of 
Los Angeles. He's, don't let his location fool you. He's really good. The Word on Fire Bible is an, is an evangelical Bible, evangelical in the sense that it is a Bible meant to bring people into the Christian faith. All of the philosophy behind Robert, Bishop, Bishop Robert Barron and his, his whole production of this material is philosophy that I actually use in producing the catechumenate. So if you've gone through the catechumenate and you like the format of the catechumenate and the ways that other things are brought in, this is going to do exactly the same thing that I do uh, because he, he agrees with me. And I say that because I had all of this philosophy before I ever heard of him and ever read anything that he wrote. There are two volumes out right now. Volume one is the Gospels. So it's less portable than your whole Bible because the first volume, which is just the Gospels, is the size of a full Bible. But it has notes uh, on the Greek and Greek concepts, like what does it mean that Jesus is the manifestation of the grace of God? Grace is chorus, and here's an explanation for you. It has notes from the church fathers, quotations from all of the church fathers, East and West, and from modern theologians like Flannery O'Connor, G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, really good theologians like that, uh, Archbishop Fulton Sheen. And it also includes artwork. So um, the example that I, I've been talking about this all week, the example for the prodigal son in Luke 15 is Rembrandt's prodigal son painting, which is out, an outstanding preaching tool for that. And it has notes about, look, this is the theology about this piece of art. This is why the lighting goes the certain way. This, these are the things to look for. Um, and if you're like me, and you appreciate a good book just because it's a book, uh, that's enjoyment, not use. Uh, <laughs> there, the, the, the middle version of the book is the one I'd recommend, which is the hardcover. It's just a cloth-bound hardcover. Um, you can get a leather one, if you, uh, but I, I wouldn't. I'd stick with the hardcover. It's got a nice sewn binding. It has a nice weight. The paper isn't thin. It's nice, thick, good paper. And there is a, there is a font that was designed just for that book. So if you, if you appreciate a good typeset. Call now. But wait, volume two comes out and I think it was, it was four days about three days ago. So I think tomorrow is when volume two comes out and volume two is Acts, the letters, which is all the the epistles, whoops, and Revelation. So, the church library is 100% going to get a copy of each of these volumes. But, if you're interested, if I've sold you, you might want to get one for your home too. I, I am extraordinarily impressed with that book more so than I have been with a production like that in a long time. And if you're using something like the Concordia Self-Study Bible or the Lutheran Study Bible, this is gonna blow it out of the water. It's not one contained, it's, you know, and, and they're still producing it, so it's gonna be a whole series of books, but the degree of information that they include is astonishing, and it is all very good. So, I'll see you at the altar. Yes, yes, not so bad.